Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon or good morning, everyone, depending on where you are. Uh, I'm Steve Mendelson, president of the American Association of Visually Impaired and Third East, and you're uh, at the obvious session, What Do I Do With This Law Degree? First of all, I want to give you the opening CEU code. That is 40349, opening CEU code 40349, and I'll be giving you the closing CEU code at the end. But meanwhile, uh, for the middle, we have the uh, unique opportunity here of hearing from four uh, experienced uh, members of Avia, four blind and visually impaired attorneys who have had different and distinguished but very diverse careers in various aspects of the law. And we thought that they would talk to you today about the different kinds of work they pursued, about some of the issues they've experienced, challenges and triumphs, uh, and about whether or not different areas of legal work present uh, different challenges for blind people or create distinctly different opportunities. So with that in mind, I'm going to uh, just to introduce them briefly to you. We have uh, uh, Steve Blow from Albany, New York, who is a veteran utility lawyer working for the state of New York in utility regulation and um, briefly in the private sector. We have Cynthia Hawkins from Florida, who is a law professor and academic. We have Chris Prentice from Texas, uh, who has had a varied uh, background in in litigation and administrative work, who now works for the Texas Workforce Commission, who happens to be uh, one of the nation's leading experts on Randolph Shepard. And we have Charles Navarrete uh, from California, uh, who, after years of practicing law on on the good guy side, uh, worked for 20 years as an administrative law judge uh, in the workers' compensation area. So with that in mind, we're hoping that uh, each one of our guests will take about 15 minutes or so to talk about whatever they want to talk about. And then hopefully at the end, we'll have a little time for more crosstalk and for questions from you, the audience. So I think the best way to do this is in alphabetical order. So I guess we will start with Steve Blow. Steve, welcome. Thanks. I just to go through from the sort of the beginning, the end of my legal career, I was interviewing for a summer job when I was at Cornell Law School with a mid-sized firm in um, New Hampshire. And I walked into the um, place in the stacks where the interview was going to take place. And the uh, interviewer asked me, can you read? So that kind of put me off private employment and uh, steered me toward government employment. I did have a summer job between my second and third year at the Cornell Organized Crime Institute, where I basically did uh, some papers, uh, one on Brady versus Maryland, and another on wiretapping. And then I was uh, decided I'd interview with a government agency. It so happened that somebody from the Department of Public Service was going to come to Cornell, so I signed up to uh, interview with them. They decided that there were too few people to make it worth their while to come to Ithaca, so they invited me to go to Albany. So I interviewed with them and uh, had a lot different experience. The general counsel said, I've never worked with a blind lawyer before. Could you explain how you would handle things? He just gave me an open-ended way of, you know, time to explain and so on. And... uh, 
a month later or so, he called me up and said, I never worked with a blind lawyer before, but I think you could make it. And you're hired if you want the job. And I had a job before many of most, I think even, of my law school classmates in the third year classmates. An interesting thing about my experience with public employment, employment with the Department of Public Service, they regulate public utilities, was that I was able to take on bigger cases and a role of actually handling the case earlier than other people that I knew in the private sector who were working there. They had worked, some of them had worked three, four years before their law firm would let them be first chair or whatever you want to call it in handling the case. And for a while, because my supervisor was trying to deal with a uh, nuclear power plant issue, some of the people from New York would remember the Shoreham nuclear power plant in the mid-80s. They had a lot of cost overruns, and they were trying to figure out what to do. Finally, it got scrapped. But because he was so involved in that, I was essentially supervisorless for a, a number of years. I learned a lot from the staff, environmentalists and economists and accountants and engineers. And as long as I treated them well, they treated me well and made me look good. So fast forward several years, I worked there at the Department of Public Service for 37 years. And I, of course, met a lot of private lawyers along the way, lawyers that were representing the utilities. I mostly, I handled a lot of cases, but mostly handled environmental matters because the department regulated the siting of power plants and transmission lines, gas and electric transmission lines. So a lot of what I did was reviewed applications and participated in hearings involving the seeking of those permits and so on. But then I met a lot of uh, private lawyers on the other side who represented applicants. And uh, one of the guys I met, well, to back up there, in the state, I think most states are this way, you can't go directly from employment in a regulatory agency to representing somebody that comes before the agency. You can't appear before that agency on behalf of a regulated company for two years. And there are certain things that you have a lifetime bar against if you were involved in a particular transaction, then there would be a lifetime bar. So when I retired, uh, this one lawyer said, so when is your two-year bar going to be up? And I told him when it was going to be up. He told me later that he, um, he wrote that into a notebook he had so he would remember it. And so when my two-year bar was almost up, uh, he and another person from the law firm, uh, Barclay Damon LLP, invited me to become a associate with the firm as of counsel, be an independent contractor. So my relationship with private law firms uh, went from a can you read uh, question to uh, being invited to be part of a law firm that I had practiced law against, so to speak, when I was leading the staff team reviewing applications that they were presenting on behalf of clients. So I did that for 37 years at the state, and then I had a two-year hiatus, and then 
became of counsel of Barclay Damon for several clients for 21 months and finally retired at the end of September last year. So that kind of gives you the overview. People that were in the law firm and other law firms and other private lawyers began to respect me because they knew the work that I had done. Whereas when I first started out, obviously, the one person that I interviewed with didn't even assume that a blind lawyer could practice law. The other thing I would say about the difference between private law firms and the state is one of the major things that's different is collegiality. There were three, four, or five lawyers on a particular case representing a particular client, and we all bounced ideas off of one another in the private law firm. In the state, there's just not that many lawyers, so we could bounce ideas off of one another, but I often was the only lawyer representing the staff. On big cases, there might be two or three, but you know, very big, say a rate case uh, where somebody might deal with revenue requirement and somebody might deal with rate design or something like that. But um, the collegiality seemed to be a lot more. Uh, and the one other difference that I, I noticed is because it's a private law firm or law context, you have to look at the very beginning of the case or of a representation to see if there's any conflict between your law firm and the clients they're representing and other clients of the law firm, or you know, you have two different clients and they might have a legal conflict or a business conflict or something. You gotta be very, very careful in that. And that's something that I never had experienced, obviously, as a staff lawyer, because you know, we were never in conflict with anybody as far as representation, because our client was technically the public interest. We all were said to be representing the public interest, so that was our client, and uh, we didn't have to do this conflict check, which is a big part of what happens when a private law firm is approached by a client, et cetera. So anyway, that's uh, pretty much my spiel. Thank you, Steve. Let me ask you a quick question um, in the few seconds remaining, and, and thank you for a really uh, encouraging presentation, because what you've reminded us, and I'm sure it's as true today, is that once you get your foot in the door, even if in your case you almost got your foot in, in a random door, uh, once you get your foot in the door and have a chance to prove yourself, it can be done with tremendous long-term career success, and that's very impressive. But the question I wanted to ask you is this. Utility regulation cases in general, and rate cases in particular, are known for the incredibly the voluminous materials uh, submitted uh, by applicants, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of pages. I assume that today, with these answers made in scanning and optical character recognition and so forth, those would not be as great a barrier as they had, were in the past. But how did you deal with that kind of material throughout the, uh, particularly the earlier years of your career when technology was not as advanced as it is now? First of all, I had good staff, people that, that knew their stuff, but I had to read it and understand it as well. So I had readers. My secretary first started out as my secretary and reader, and then the state or the department hired usually college students, some people that were interested in going on to law school. Actually, a couple of people did go on to law school, and they read uh, but I, as I say, I had to understand everything and, and kind of had to direct them. You need to look at this over here or I need this exhibit or whatever. 
But now, obviously, with the computerization and so on, it's a lot easier. The one thing I did, which um, most private law firms did not have a problem with, everything was created pretty much in Word. Some of them were perfect, but most in Word. And I would ask them, because sometimes the PDF, especially uh, several years ago, was difficult to read. So I would ask them, would you mind uh, sending me your Word version? I won't try to modify it or because that's the problem. That That's what they don't they don't want to do. Yeah. They, so all of them were pretty much all of them, as far as I can remember, were willing to do that. And it helped me out tremendously because I could read paragraph by paragraph or I could, you know, it had line numbers on the side for testimony and so on and so forth. And applications were the same kind of thing. They were pretty long. Some of them were 15 volumes in um, in hard copy, especially a power plant application. Well, that's great. Steve, thank you very much for sharing this with us. As I say, it's uh, really encouraging. And if we have young people out there who are thinking of going into the law, I hope that uh, your experience will help to inspire them to continue on along those lines. Thank you again. And now we turn to Cynthia Hawkins, who will give us a perspective uh, primarily from the standpoint of her academic work as a law professor. Cynthia, welcome. Thank you for being here. And please go ahead. Thank you, Steve. I was born low vision, but I'll, I'll tell you about uh, a little bit about my odyssey with that. When I graduated from, from Harvard in the 80s, Harvard Law in the 80s, the push was big law, uh, and it still is in many ways, according to the alumni magazine. So when I came out when I was law school, I said, oh, entertainment law, that'll be exciting. So I moved out to, to L.A., accepted a job, and uh, saw myself living at the, those of us that in our 50s and 60s and older will we'll remember L.A. law. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the fast car, the cell phone in your car and all that uh, at the time. I hated it. And I, I was there a year, and I said, this is not for me. Uh, big law is not for me. I don't want to see the inside. And, and as Steve uh, attested, you know, uh, many associates, uh, unlike his, ex his great experience, were really seeing the inside of their law library at their law firm for the first four or five years. And so I, I went back to D.C. where I was, where I was uh, born and raised and um, landed a job as uh, legislative counsel to a newly uh, elected DC council member. And I developed a government contract specialty. Eventually I was appointed uh, the general counsel for the Department of Administrative Services in DC purchasing uh, and leasing, uh, handling purchasing and leasing issues. And then appointed uh, a magistrate administrative judge for government contracts uh, at the contract appeals board. But as a, after a term I decided you know, I really want to pursue law teaching. And so that was about 10 years. I, I was in government service for about 10 years. I've been a law professor for about the past, I cannot believe, 26 years. And then I multiply that by the, the probably 75 to 100 students I've taught every semester. And I, I'm just blown away that these 26 years have flown by. Ironically, uh, although government uh, contracts was my Buyer specialty in law practice, I never had a chance to teach it. Uh, when you enter law teaching as a brand new minted uh, assistant professor, you often have to teach what they want you to teach and you are assigned courses. So I never did get to teach 
government contracts. Uh, eventually, um, family law had always been my favorite area of law. And uh, I had worked on some number of legislative pieces in the family law area when I was working for the DC Council. Uh, eventually, I was, I, I taught and still teach family law. Adoption is my actual specialty. Adoption law is my actual specialty uh, and child welfare and, and the like. And so, you know, this academic practice, the difference uh, kind of leading off what, what uh, Steve discussed. So after the 26 years, I've been 26 years as a law professor, 10 years in, in government, um, you know, what are the differences? Well, the main difference in, in academic professorships is that you have much more time for reflection, which is, which is if, you, if you are somebody who loves to write uh, and loves to research, as well as love to teach, obviously, um, because those are the three aspects of a successful law professor or professor of any time, research, writing, and teaching, and we're evaluated on all three points. In our interviews last year, because I was on the hiring committee, I called it the three-pronged stool and asked each candidate which prong of their stool was the most wobbly <laughs> between the writing, teaching, and actually you, you also we also provide public interest work as well. But if you're very you know interested in community service and researching and writing, then law practice. Uh, law teaching is, is for you. It is somewhat of a solitary experience. We are a bit siloed in that we are so introverted into our courses and into our individual pursuits that there is somewhat a bit of, of solitariness in it. And I must tell you that when we talk about challenges, I was, as I said at the beginning, I was born low vision. And in 2015, as a result of a medical uh, mishap, I'll just put it that way, I lost much of my vision that I had. Uh, it was, I lost my peripherals and then what I had uh, at the time was, was badly corrupted. And so now it's, you know, not correctable. And interestingly enough, as that was happening, my then dean really surreptitiously went out of his way to try to get me to retire gently pushing me towards retirement, even though I wasn't at retirement age. And that was my first rush with immediately right away with, you know, similar to someone asking Steve if they could read, pushing me out the door when I had worked successfully at that law school for probably 12 years at that time. And so um, I was able to find and hire a disability rights advocates. And um, after our little our little meeting, our tete-a-tete -tete with the dean's office, it was surprising how accommodating they were. Suddenly, the chairs that I had begged them for, for years, even before I lost uh, my vision and got it and had a guide dog, asked them to move out of the hallway. Wasn't it amazing that right after that next week, those chairs just disappeared from the hallway and my guide dog and I were able to walk down the hallway and successfully get to my classroom. Whereas before, I couldn't get through the hallway because of the chairs, the students, everything it was just a congested mess. And, um, you know, I love the parting, 
discussion by, by my disability rights advocate about, it appears as though this building is not ADA compliant and uh, the swinging door started working magically. Um, and so it really, it really made a difference to, to have that disability rights advocate speak to them. We did have to make murmurs of impending lawsuits. Another challenge, and it, this is very surprising, especially 20, 2020 and 2021, this has happened as, as recently as 2021, it's often difficult to get publishers to accommodate requests for PDFs of the casebooks. Yes, they have a process for to accommodate students, but for faculty, we are not necessarily <laughs> accommodated and not necessarily part of the publisher's accommodation scheme. So that has been difficult. Um, I've had to call authors that I happen to know of my case books to have them put pressure on the publisher to get me the PDF so that I can use my screen reader to uh, prepare my notes. So that's been another challenge. But, you know, I, I must say that um, finding the community of Avia has really been a blessing to me. I came to this group in 2017 and uh, haven't have been a pest to them and haven't left since and hope to continue to, to serve. So it's important to have your collegiality elsewhere if you don't get it in your position. And I know that's a lot less than 15 minutes, but I want to save time for questions at the end. Thank you. It's the quality and value that counts as much of the time, and you've given us a lot of quality and value and a lot to think about. I'm uh, obviously very impressed by the way you prevailed in the face of these unexpected hurdles, and I'm shocked to be reminded, although certainly I've been reminded of it before, of how it is that so many of us, we reach a certain position in our lives, we've been working somewhere for 10, 20 years, and we feel not that we can coast, but that, you know, to some degree we have things under control. But there are always uh, the unexpected events that occur, either, either changes in visual status or changes in supervision. I've known of many people, for example, who were very successful in their work. A new supervisor came in who didn't like them, and suddenly they were in trouble because the, uh, the title of supervisor counted for more in the firm than the history of good work. And it sounds like, to some degree, that might be true in the academic setting as well. But uh, we're very glad and grateful that you have prevailed. And uh, as much as you think that uh, you're fortunate to have found Avia, I know I speak for all of Avia and think in saying that we feel we're very fortunate to have found you and hope we will keep you for a long time. So thank you very, very much indeed. Uh, and uh, we're now going to move on to uh, Charles Nabarete. And uh, Charles, as I said, uh, after working in private practice for the good guys, is now or was for over 20 years uh, an administrative law judge and is now, I believe, uh, retired. And uh, Charles, why don't you tell us about uh, your career and your observations in, in light of our themes today. And thank you for being here as well. Thank you, Steve. I uh, would like to give a little background which affected the way I initially entered the practice of law. I was normally cited until I was 19. And in February 1965, I was hit with a disease called Herodotus disease. And it was kind of a sudden onset because overnight I basically lost vision. I was 19 at the time 
And I've, you know, through treatment with heavy loads of steroids, I was able to retain a lot of vision. So by uh, September, I had become low vision and was with uh, really thick glasses and a high degree of elbow grease able to read, which I hadn't been able to for about seven months. And I returned to college at that time. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And even though I won a California scholarship because of my high score on the SAT test, I decided to go to junior college first. This was in 1963, way back when. Because at that time, you know, it's pretty, persons usually, or many times went to junior college and then went on to the UC systems, and that was my plan until I was interrupted in my sophomore year. And I had also planned to become an attorney in my younger years. Felt after 1965 that that was not achievable because I was not a rapid reader anymore. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that had to change my goal. So I went through school and finished up at University of California, Riverside. But during my senior year there, I was approached by one of my former roommates who told me about a program that was part of President Johnson's Great Society Legal Education Opportunity Program, which provided opportunities for minorities to go to law school. He told me one night when I was in a dorm party, drinking and so forth, and the next morning, uh, we went to take uh, a LSAT test. I was a little hungover, but I went ahead and registered and took the test and did okay, and then applied for UCLA Law School, where I was accepted as part of the LEOP program. And when I got there, they had about 30 LEOP students. About half were Mexican-Americans and about half were African-Americans. And I gravitated to the Mexican-American group and we formed an organization of Chicano law students. And they pretty much pushed the idea that we owed it to our community to go back to the community to help poor people. So after graduating from law school and seeing that other avenues were not available because like I looked into working for the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, they required you to have a driver's license, which I did not have. So I applied for and was awarded a Reginald Heber Fellowship. And I worked for legal aid for a couple of years. And then after that, worked for a year for the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. And then in 1974, I began working for the Los Angeles Center for Law and Justice, which was a housing and urban development program funded by them. And it was in the East LA area where we mainly represented the Mexican community in East Los Angeles. And I had an opportunity then to 
really get into some cases where I felt comfortable having had three years of experience with cases in the legal aid, etc., that prepared me to feel kind of competent. So one of the first cases I pursued was representing 10 Latina women who were surgically sterilized without giving their informed consent or against their will at the USC LA County General Hospital. And we filed that lawsuit in federal court in 1975 and it was certified as a class action with me being the lead attorney. And it resulted in improvements in the informed consent field for people who were being provided care in county hospitals or programs which are funded by the state or federal governments. And unfortunately, in 1978, we had a trial which resulted in the 10 women who were very courageous and not being awarded any damages. I also had a lot of experience in criminal law where our office basically pursued cases where people were accused of resisting arrest or assaulting an officer, but in fact had been beaten by the officer. One of the cases that I did take at that time was representing a Pomona College Chicano student who had been shot by the police in East LA. And they accused him of assaulting with a deadly weapon one of the sheriff's deputies. That was really strange because he was a guy that was about five foot four, very thin and had had polio as a child. So that he had like a three inch height heel because of the differences in the lengths of his legs. So, you know, it was, it was <laughs> when, when we called him to testify because he was a bright guy and I trusted him to be able to resist the questioning of the district attorney. And when he was walking up to the witness stand from the defense table, you could hear the gasp from the jurors when they saw him limp and saw his small stature. And they, you know, later when I talked to them, they said, at that time, we, we believed that there was no way that this kid small as he was and having had Porter could have assaulted the sheriff's deputy deputy. But anyway, we won that case and that was a great experience. By that time, I was kind of burnt out from representing the poor community, Chicano community in East LA, because there was really no remedy to what their basic problems were, which was discrimination and poverty. So I decided because I had three children under the age of five to open a private practice. So I was still, you know, seeing fairly well. And I started my private practice in 1979 as a sole practitioner, which was a big mistake. And I, you know, took whatever came in the door sometimes. And it was a lot of workers' compensation cases and personal injury cases. However, due to my illness, which continued to cause chronic inflammation in my eyes, 
I lost a lot of sight at that time. I had started in private practice using a closed circuit TV. And by the time several years later, I was unable to use that because my sight had deteriorated. So in addition to being in the adversarial system where you don't get any breaks from the other attorneys and some judges were hostile sometimes, it became very difficult. So I decided uh, maybe in 1986 to pursue government employment. And so I, I applied for the state administrative law judge's position, both with the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board and the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board. Many of my former colleagues from Legal Aid and the Los Angeles Center for Law and Justice had been appointed administrative law judges for the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board, and they vouched for my competence so that in 1990, I was appointed administrative law judge for the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board for California. I found that experience to be very satisfying, both because, you know, we handled the appeals within 30 to 45 days after the filing of an appeal by either the claimant who had denied benefits or the employer who contested the awarding of benefits. And uh, the closest thing to describe our office or our, how our hearings were conducted uh, was in the uh, novel named The Client by John Grissom. He described the experience, uh, the, the hearing in a room with the judge and the minor and the state representative. And that's the way it was. It was a small venue and, and it really got to know, it was, uh, it was where the, the road, the, the uh, wheels met the road in initial appeals. And, you know, I did that for 24 years and I found that very satisfying because we're able to help some claimants and also relieve employers from being having their reserve accounts charged for non-meritorious claims. And beginning in 1990, that was a time when technology really took off. So they had a really good website where I was able to access the uh, rules or the uh, cases and uh, what we called precedent decisions, which guided us. And uh, also we had access to LexisNexis so that we could really research other points of law. And it was a very satisfying career that I had with them for 24 years. In addition to which I had the sometimes good experience of having readers. However, you know, that could be a problem too. Uh, sometimes the reader would think that they were really conducting the hearing and then charge, and it was kind of a push and pull thing. But anyway, that kind of summarizes my legal career. And I retired in 2014 after having practiced law and been an administrative law judge for 43 years. And that was a good experience. Well, Charles, thank you very much. That's very interesting. I want to ask you a question. Uh, I, too, began my career in legal aid, and I will say without reservation 
that uh, the greatest acceptance uh, and unquestioningness, uh, so to speak, of me as a blind attorney that I've ever had in my career was from my legal aid clients. I always wondered why that would be. And the only possible explanation I can think of is they had the delusion that as a lawyer, I had some power to help them. <laughs> well, you know, they didn't care much about my visual impairments. They wanted to win. <laughs> and That's if you, point, exactly. And if you, you know, if they thought you did a good job for them and helped them, that was all they wanted. They didn't care about visual impairment, to be frank. Exactly right. And I guess there's a lesson in that, in that somewhere. But thank you for this account. Uh, you've had an amazing and, again, a very, very productive career. And it's interesting to know that uh, while to some degree your career choices and your career options were obviously influenced by, uh, by your visual uh, condition and by changes in it, that uh, nevertheless you had a, a great deal of autonomy and were able to pursue a career that was fulfilling to you and rewarding to society. So we thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Now we'll turn to Chris Prentice. Chris is from Texas. Uh, he has had an extremely varied career, which I'm sure uh, he'll, he'll tell you about as appropriate. Uh, and we're pleased to, to turn the proceedings over to Chris now. So Chris, welcome and go ahead. Thank you, Steve. I hope you'll have another seven hours. It takes a while to go through my uh, my little resume. I'll try to boil it down a little less than that, though. I uh, was the first blind law student that was admitted to the Texas Tech Law School, which at the time had only been around about 15 years. I didn't take the LSAT because LSAT would not accommodate me. So I got in on mediocre undergraduate grades in a finance program and letters of recommendation from professors and people that knew me and to this day, I don't know what lies they told, and I guess I should never read those letters because I'm not sure I could live up to whatever it was that they said. But um, I did not know what I wanted to do. I was, you know, I'm I'm not a second generation or third generation attorney. There's nobody really in my family that had gotten more than a college degree. My grandparents on my mom's side were were teachers. They had gotten a college degree, but that was about it. So I did the uh, on-campus interviews during law school, and I had some great experiences. I had one with uh, Exxon USA back in 84, 85, and, um, you know, this was before the ADA, so they could ask stupid questions, and and they were good at it. One of the interviewers was an older guy, and he said, uh, well, says something here or something about blind. Are you blind? I said, well, I'm legally blind and have been since I was 18 months old. He said, are there any blind lawyers out there? I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, there are quite a few of them, and they've even written books and, and done movies about them. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, well, how, how in the world do you, uh, do you think you're going to be able to practice law? I said, well, I'm you know, making it through law school. I figure you know, I've got a really good memory, and, and I listen well, and, and, and I think I can handle it. He said, well, how do you take your exams? I said, well, somebody reads me the questions, and then I type the answers. And He said, I just don't know how you can do that, having all that stuff rolling around in your head like that and all that I just don't see how anybody could do that. And I said, well, I've been learning this way for years. It's no problem. But I walked out of there deciding that he needed to go back and crawl back under the rock that he come out from under before he came to do the interview. So I had lots of experiences like that. And um, after law school, I continued to do a lot of interviewing and get lots of rejection letters. I had enough to wallpaper the inside of the house. And finally, after I'd been out of law school, it'd been almost a year. It was in December of 87. There was an opening at the city attorney's office in Lubbock. It had been open since August, and they were finally desperate enough that they'd talked to me. 
So I got an interview, and they just weren't sure that I could do the job. I said, well, give me an opportunity. Let's see what I can do. Well, all they would agree to do is give me a two-week trial period, and then they would make up their mind after that. But this trial period was not paid. It was an uncompensated trial period, but I wasn't in a position to really argue that at that point because it's not like I had another job somewhere else. And so I got in there, and the first few days they had these office practicing attorneys trying to show me how to prosecute cases in municipal court. And after a couple of days, I was like, guys, y'all just go back over to your office. I'll get this figured out. Because they weren't good at presenting cases. They just weren't trial lawyers. So I used CCTVs. The VR agency bought me two of them. I had one in my office and I had one in the courtroom. And so I didn't have to transport them back and forth because back then they were they were pretty heavy. And they were, of course, they were black and white. So Toward the end of that two weeks, they came over to see me on Wednesday, and they said, uh, we're not ready to make up our mind. We want to wait till January. This is in December. And I said, oh, well, okay. I mean, like like I said, I wasn't in a position to argue, but I'd already signed a six-month lease on an apartment. So that Wednesday night, I went to church and happened to go to church with a guy that was on the city council, and he asked me how the job was going. I said, well, you know, George, it'd be going a lot better if I could get paid for it, and they apparently don't want to make up their mind till January, and I'd like to be able to continue to eat. And um, I suspect that he had a talk with the city attorney the next morning because before lunch the next day, uh, they came over and offered me the job. So I prosecuted the municipal court for uh, almost four years, and I was ready for a little bit bigger challenge. So the uh, disability rights uh, in Texas, they opened an office in Lubbock. I applied for a job. And, and they hired me as regional attorney, regional office manager. And I'd always wanted to do disability rights law. So I thought that would be great. So uh, the work was wonderful. The politics were incredibly crazy. I mean, they were, it was hard to deal with. They were not consistent. It was not a good situation for me. I did that for about 18, 19 months. And then I was ready to move on. And a guy came to me that I'd gone to, I'd known in law school. He was a couple of years ahead of me. And he was practicing in the small town of Hale Center. And he said, hey, I need somebody to come help me. Uh, you want to go to work for me? And so I went up and checked out. The, and, and he said, there's lots and lots of work to do. And I thought, well, it's got to be better than what I'm doing. So I said, okay. So sold my house and went up there. And just a few months after getting up there, the guy lost his mind. And, and I figured out really quickly why there was so much work to do. He wasn't doing any. He wanted me to do all the work so he could play. His wife was a doctor and she was making enough money. And, you know, he said, I'll be the rainmaker and you can do all the work. And that was okay, except for the fact that I wasn't really getting paid much money. And he got sued about a couple of months after I got there for malpractice and they sued him for like $6 million. He didn't have malpractice insurance. He said, fine, I'll just quit. So here I am. I've sold my house. I've moved to a small town. And now what am I going to do? I didn't have people running up to me, hey, I'll offer you a job. So I figured I just needed to figure it out. So I opened my own practice in January of 94 and made a lot of mistakes. I wasn't really ready to do that. That wasn't something I was prepared to do, run my own office. But uh, I kept it together and, and actually stayed had a private practice for the next 15, almost 16 years. And about, I guess, four years into that, I... Uh, was approached by the county judge there in, in Hale County. And he asked me, he said, he said, I want you to run for county attorney. I said, we don't have one. He said, yeah, but the Constitution says we're entitled to one. And 
and had one for several years, so you can run as a write-in and you won't lose. So I filed as a write-in candidate for county attorney on the last day you could file as a write-in, paid my fees, and um, it got in the paper the next week, and people were like, well, wait a minute. You know, how did you figure this out? And I didn't, I didn't, you know, give the judge away. The whole, whole deal was the judge didn't want to give the DA another assistant in his office because he didn't like the DA. And so he wanted me to be the county attorney to kind of divide the power. Of course, you know, the joke was as long as I wrote my own name and I would get elected because nobody else wrote in because they didn't file in time. So I got elected and, and that went well and then that didn't go well. And I got reelected two years later. I had an opponent. That the more he campaigned, the more votes I got. He was one of those kind of people that just annoyed the thunder out of people. Uh, but I ended up defending the commissioners, and they came after me. And so the next time I came, it came around to run for re-election, I went ahead and ran, but I got third in the party primary, and and so I needed to figure out something. So I'd kept my private practice going all this time, but it was kind of something I did after hours and when I wasn't busy representing the county. So... After that, then I went back to full-time private practice, and I'd moved my office to Plainview, so I was right across the street from the courthouse. I did a lot of criminal appointments, and you talk about appreciative clients. Those charged with serious felonies were normally not that appreciative because they thought I was in bed with the DA. And I was like, no, said, if you talk to the DA, he'll be more likely to call me Satan than he would be his friend. So uh, I said, the DA is not paying my salary. I said, the county is, and... You know, I'm here to fight for you. And, well, the guys in here say that you don't know what you're doing. I said, okay, do you want to trust the guy in the nice suit or the orange jumpsuit? You know, it's your choice. I did have one try to fire me right before a jury trial. And he told the judge he wanted a new lawyer. And the judge said, well, he's appointed. Do you have money to hire one? He said, no. He said, well, then he said, well, he's not ready. He only came to see me one time. And the judge said, well. He said, when I was district attorney, assistant district attorney before I was a judge, I count on one hand the number of cases that I lost. One of my losses was to your lawyer. So I know that if he says he's ready, he's ready. So your request is denied. Sit down and shut up. So we went to trial and he had priors. So he was not eligible for probation. So he was charged with two first degree felonies, one secondary. He was looking at a long time in prison and they, offered him like 40 years and he ended up uh, being found not guilty on aggravated kidnapping aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and retaliation he was found guilty for a misdemeanor assault and he got a few months in jail and he was out at the end of the trial he said judge can i talk to you for a minute and judge said yeah what is he, he said i just want to apologize i was wrong <laughs> so you know kind of won, won him over and so i did that till oh nine and then I wanted an opportunity to be able to uh, make a little bit more money and have a little less stress. So I uh, applied for a job with the state and went to work for the Department of Licensing and Regulation. And I was a civil enforcement prosecutor, primarily going after um, towing companies and tow truck drivers for not following the state regulations, not filling out the receipts properly and things like that. And those cases were heard before the State Office of Administrative Hearings. I also went after uh, elevator companies and auctioneers and some of the other areas that we licensed. And I did that for three and a half years. And then an opportunity came up to be assistant general counsel at the Department of Assistive and Rehab Services, where the VR agency was. And um, I applied the first time and I interviewed, but one of the people I was interviewing against was somebody that was already in the office. 
that was wanting to get a promotion. And one of the questions I guess that might have done me in was asked me if I knew what, if I'd done any work in uh, chapter 2260 of the government code, if I knew what that was. And I said, I said, yeah, I said, it's the one that comes after chapter 2259. That didn't seem to go over too well, but I did not get that position. But then they had to, since they hired the person that was being promoted from within the office, then her position was then available. I applied again and I got hired in 2013. And then as soon as I got hired, the agency went under sunset review, which in Texas, every agency gets sunset review every seven to 14 years where the sunset commission decides, should this agency still exist or should it be sunsetted and kicked into oblivion? So we were, and my job transferred to Texas Workforce Commission, and I've been there uh, for the last almost five years. And so now I do contracts work. I do uh, uh, Randolph-Shepard work and uh, VR appeals representing the agency. And so and just found that, you know, sometimes you just have to be open to try new things. Chris, thank you. It's an incredible story, and your, your resiliency, incredible resiliency is what just, just strikes me the most, and your willingness to take risks, uh, and I really commend you for it. I'm glad to see, and I know our community benefits from the fact that you've, you've ended up in a, in a very good place. In the remaining time that we have, I'd like a, a little crosstalk and like to invite some questions or comments from our audience, but I want to start with one question for anybody on the panel who wants to answer it. People have asked me over the years if the law was a good profession for blind people relative to other professions. And I said, uh, in some respects, I thought it was. And the main respect in which I thought it was, was that in the law, perhaps more than any other profession, the possibilities for advancement can be enhanced by having good social skills. Uh, and I believe that many of the blind lawyers who I know have been successful uh, have had the characteristic of having extremely good social skills and uh, knowing how to use them and knowing how to network and knowing how to have friends who appreciate uh, the examples that they give in practice. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think the uh, practice of law for uh, blind people is a substantially better career than airline pilot or taxi cab driver. <laughs> I have not been known for having good social skills, as many of you know. But I think that despite that, it's been a really good career, both financially and you know, having satisfaction in the work you've done. It really depends on where you land over my career, I've always had, I haven't had anybody after I got my job with the state that has looked down on me or said, you can't do this or whatever. I mean, and they were always willing to help. Some people were inept as when they tried to create a uh, website for the Department of Public Service, uh, a uh, document and matter management system and didn't listen to me or the uh, other blind person in the uh, department but listened to some guys from India who didn't know anything about screen reading software or anything like that and used fly-out menus and all sorts of stuff. That's sort of a little bit of incompetence. But as far as people having goodwill and trying to work things out and everything, I always... So I think it depends on where you land. I think part of it, too, actually is the fact that um, sometimes it's good to have a little... Um, have a little sandpaper rub on you because, you know, people will think that uh, you're in over your head. I I've, I had an attorney in a jury trial when I was prosecuting in municipal court back in Lubbock, my first job. He tried to bring it up in uh, Vordar. He said, now, 
Uh, are there any of you on this panel that are going to give an special advantage to the state because they've got a blind attorney? And I just kind of looked at him like, when the heck is that? But, you know, sometimes that is one of those deals, well, he doesn't really belong here kind of thing. And some, that can serve as a good motivating thing because you want to show people, look, I belong here just as much as anybody else does. I've earned it. So I think sometimes it's good actually to have a little bit of confrontation that you've got to deal with because sometimes it feels good to be able to prove yourself and show people that you belong where you are and that you didn't just get handed a spot because you were the poor, helpless, little blind person. And most of the law is, after all, adversarial at some point or another. Thank you, everyone. Let's uh, open the proceedings now to any questions or comments from our audience. And I do hope we've maybe inspired a few people to think about a legal career today. Lynn, do we have anyone? We do have. Rhonda, you should be able to unmute. Yes, thank you so much for this presentation. I really appreciate it. Um, I just have a general question for everybody on the panel. Um, so you all practice in one area of the law, and it sounds like some of you all had transitions into other areas of the law. And I'm going through a period of time where my vision is getting worse, and I want to practice in a different area. And I just wanted to know if you all had any advice for that or you know, what was the challenges in learning a new area, especially if you practice in this area of law and you've known it and you but you kind of want to do something different. Thank you. I have a couple of thoughts, if I may. Uh, Rhonda, first of all, thank you very much for attending and for your question. First of all, I would say my first recommendation would be to please, please join Avia. Uh, we'd love to have you. My second thought is I would begin by deciding for myself what area of law, I, if you haven't already, what area of law you want to practice in. And then figure out what the different uh, career uh, niches are within, within that area of law and then figure out which would be most conducive to you temperamentally or in terms of your experience. Uh, then think through and do some research on what some of the technology aspects would be. And then go out and begin and begin uh, applying and using your previous experience uh, as a bulwark to prove your competence. I think what uh, most of us have experienced is that we need to be flexible. You know, and, and that's not uncommon for attorneys. We move from one area to another, sometimes with good experiences and sometimes with not, but you need to be open to be able to move from one area to another. My response, uh, Rhonda, would be that uh, you find an area that interests you and you put your mind to it. Where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's not a will, there's a lawyer. You can do it. Um, I mean, some things are more challenging than others, but, but having done civil, criminal, administrative, office, courtroom, whatever, I've there's not much I haven't done. And it's basically the only way I'm not going to be able to do it is somebody won't let me in the courtroom or won't let me in the office. And you just have to decide this is what I want to do. This is where I'm interested. And if you want to learn something different, learn it. It doesn't matter how good your eyes are. Your brain still works. You can learn whatever you want to learn and you can develop new skills and you'll, you'll find yourself developing the skills that you need for that particular area if it's something that interests you enough, if it doesn't really interest you enough, then find something that does. Yeah, it's no. really true. It's really true that that if if you're in an area that really interests you, then it's amazing how you find ways to to adapt. And Rhonda, I would say yes, definitely pursue what you're interested in, and particularly if you have, even if you have job opportunities in an area you're not sure of, it's often worth it to 
pursue that job opportunity because it may be a springboard to something else and you just never know. Chris's comments earlier reminded me of something I, I once told at another attorney who was on the other side. You know, he was kind of bad mouthing my blindness. And I said, Well, I passed the same bar exam you did. So get off of it. Thank you all both so much. I just have a question. I think Chris and Charles mentioned that um, there's pros and cons of starting your own practice. So I just wanted to know, you know, what was the good experience you had with your own practice and what were the challenges? My challenge was losing sight, more sight after opening my own office. Also, I think one of the challenges was being a sole practitioner. Uh, it's better to be with other attorneys who you can bounce ideas off of and, and who can give you the benefit of their experience. So I think those two things made it not a good experience for me. The biggest challenge for me was I had too much heart left after law school. You've got to get enough money up front to be able to practice. You can't let your heart dictate what cases you take unless you have an unlimited supply of money because you've got to be able to pay your bills and you've got to trust yourself and not take on too many cases to where you don't overwhelm yourself with work with cases that people aren't paying you for. Your experience, your knowledge, and your wisdom is of value and your time is of bigger value. And so you want to make sure that you get enough money up front and you don't let people take advantage of you or your time. Well, you know, that's a blind lawyer. I don't need to pay them as much or... Because if you don't get the money up front, you're not going to get it. Whether they're found, if it's a criminal case, whether they're found guilty or not guilty, and in a civil case, whether they win or lose, they don't want to keep paying you after the case is over. So if you don't get the money up front, you might as well say, well, I guess I did that one for not enough money because I didn't collect enough money. When I walked away from private practice, I had over probably $200,000 of uncollected receivables that I'll never see. So... I think that and just making sure that you're careful about the cases you choose. Sometimes I took on too many cases because I was scared somebody else wasn't going to walk in the door. You can't operate like that. It was probably the biggest mistake I made. Uh, the best part of it was, you know, I got to choose who I wanted to represent. And if I didn't like somebody and I said, well, I'm not interested in taking your case. And I like the challenges. I mean, I, I sued Continental Airlines for somebody and went to federal court and fought Fulbright and Jaworski on the other side. And, you know, that was a growing experience for me. And I, you know, I got to do that. I didn't have something, well, you can't take that case because there wasn't anybody to tell me no except me. So, but those are probably the biggest pros and cons right there. You know, I really agree with Chris on that. You have to be a good businessman and know, you know, that you are reliant on being paid in order to make a go of it. Thank you both for that. I hope that was helpful. Uh, so I want to... We're going to close here. I want to thank our participants once again. Uh, they've made an extremely valuable contribution. And I want to thank uh, all those who attended in the audience. And I hope that this session was of value to you too. Let me give the closing CEU code now uh, and then sign off. That code is 04151, 04151. So thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.